before we jump in, I want to give you all a moment to reflect on this question. Uh, what does greatness mean for you? Right? What comes up for you when you think about greatness? Maybe it's a person, maybe it's a trait, maybe it's an ideal. Um, but I'll give you a moment to reflect on that. And if you're willing, go ahead and share that with someone next to you. All right, go ahead. All right, so greatness. What comes up for you when you think about greatness? Anyone want to throw out something that was mentioned or comes up to mind? Greatness? Fulfillment? Mastery? Mastering something? Character. Character? Your definition of greatness? Anything else? Largeness? So just being in size, great. Anything else? Gravitas, kind of carrying some weight. Meaningful, Michael Jordan. That's what I was imagining. That's the first thing I thought that would come to mind, but that's just me. Um, sacrifice. So for me, uh, a recent moment where I witnessed greatness uh, was the Oscars last month. So one of my favorite movies, Everything Everywhere All at Once, won Best Picture. Um, not just that, but also Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, Supporting Actress, among many awards that it won. And it was such a great moment um, just to see Asian representation on the screen. Um, and just for them to be recognized at the highest level for their craft. And for someone like Michelle Yeoh, who's 60 years old, Right, and has this amazing career in film and martial arts, and just to be a great inspiration for, for Asian actors and for older women, both groups who tend to be pushed aside in that industry. And then you have Ke Hui Kwan, who not only exudes greatness in how he expresses joy, as you see in these pictures, um, but he also displays greatness just in perseverance, right? I mean, the, the film was actually his return to acting after 30 years. Uh, because after starring in Indiana Jones and The Goonies as a child actor, he couldn't find any work as an Asian actor. And so collectively, this entire cast and crew demonstrated greatness in filmmaking, and they were rewarded accordingly. And so we've all seen examples and inspiration for what greatness looks like. And for, more, for most of our lives, the embedded message around greatness is, is that it's an upward achievement that it's being above or going beyond, doing things better than anyone else, winning the best awards. And that's the measure of greatness, according to our world. And yet, when Jesus came to live with us as one of us, right, he offered a much different image and practice of what it means to be great. He spent most of his life and teachings confronting the paradox of greatness. There were moments that his own disciples would argue about who was the greatest. And his response was that if you want to be great, you need to be a servant. He modeled how it's the least who will be the greatest. And he had this contrary path of greatness by letting go of his own divinity, entering our world as a helpless baby in a rural town raised by a blue-collar family. And from there, he continued on a downward path of service and sacrifice and humility. In his book, The Selfless Way of Christ, Henry Nouwen describes the invitation of downward mobility. 
He says, the great paradox which scripture reveals to us is, the real, is that real and total freedom is only found through downward mobility. The word of God came down to us and lived among us as a slave. Downward mobility is the divine way, the way of the cross, the way of Christ. The gospel radically subverts the presuppositions of our upward mobile society. It is a jarring and unsettling challenge. And so this week, as we make space to reflect on the life and death and resurrection of Christ, we're also invited into this jarring and unsettling challenge to reconsider the path that we travel. And so the question I want to explore this morning is as Jesus reframes greatness for us, how are we invited onto a downward path? And how might that actually offer us freedom? And as we look at the narrative of Palm Sunday, Jesus is protesting the way this world perceives and engages the path of greatness. And this week especially becomes an opportunity to continually reset and reshape our understanding and practice of what greatness means for Christ. And so leading up to Jesus' big entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, we discover that he's asked his disciples to essentially swipe someone's donkey and colt from another village under the guise of borrowing it. And Matthew highlights this because it's a callback to the prophet Zechariah. And so this is what Matthew says, starting in verse 4. He says, this took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foil of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put their cloaks on them, and he sat on them. And so this has to be a very confusing and surprising experience for his disciples, right? To go take some random person's donkey and its baby donkey, right? So is he planning to ride them simultaneously, right? Which would be very impressive and a crowd pleaser, I'm sure. But that's not really the point. Jesus riding a donkey was his way of subverting this idea of greatness. He's essentially engaging in performance art and a protest against the empire and its oppressive power. Because a donkey represents service and peace, while a horse represents strength and war. And so the crowd, and even his disciples, were probably wanting someone to stand up and fight against the Roman Empire, to com combat strength with strength, to overpower violence with violence. And yet Jesus is making a statement about power and he intentionally chooses the path of humility and service by riding a donkey. And so for us, the downward path of humility leads us to resist power and our ego. And that seems counterintuitive, especially when we live in an influencer culture that thrives on building up our ego and the power that comes with it. But there's freedom in not needing to constantly seek the approval of others or expend so much of our energy trying to construct our external self. 
Resistance to the corrupt influence of power offers protection for ourselves and for those around us. And if we look back at the life of Jesus, there are many instances where he pushes back on receiving power or embracing celebrity that people are throwing at him and demanding him to embrace. In the wilderness, which we reflected on at the beginning of Lent, you know, he rejects the temptation to have power and authority over this entire world. And then after his miraculous feeding of the crowds with just some bread and fish, they all wanted to make him their king. But he avoids them by riding off, running off into the mountains to be alone. And that seems to be a common theme, that Jesus would just disappear or quickly leave any time the crowds were ready to push him up that celebrity ladder. Jesus seemed to have some insight into the dangers and corruption of power and ego and what a deadly combination that can be if it's left unchecked. And what Jesus is alluding to here is something I think I've been wrestling with for the last few years. This tension of whether or not powerful and charismatic leaders are healthy for organizations or communities. And I've seen enough examples, I've heard enough stories, just in the last couple of years even, that make me wonder whether the harm and pain is worth the benefits of entrusting a charismatic leader with too much power, especially in churches. Whether it's individuals like Mark Driscoll, Ravi Zacharias, or Jean Vanier, and many others. You know, there's a recent podcast put out by Sojourners that's called Lead Us Not, and it focuses on the life of Jean Vanier. And I'll warn you that it's not an easy listen uh, because it involves sexual abuse. And so if you choose to listen to it, be kind to yourself. At the same time, it's also important work that this team of former members of his community is uncovering his story. You know, Jean Vanier was the founder of L'Arche, which is a community with, where people with, with and without intellectual disabilities live and work together. And it, you know, it's this beautiful expression of mutuality and care. And it wasn't until after he died that news broke about the spiritual and sexual abuse that he perpetrated on the women who were seeking wisdom and counsel from him. And so one of the episodes of the podcast focuses on charisma and charismatic leaders and the power and influence they wield just because of their personalities. And they reflect on how easy and somewhat naive it is for people to confuse giftedness in speaking and presence as evidence that this person is somehow worthy of power and leadership. And there ends up being huge risks and dangers for that person and also those around when charismatic leadership goes unchecked. But one deeper question they bring up is more of a reflection of us collectively. Right? They wonder why we seek out charismatic leaders and why we put them on pedestals. In some way, what, what is our responsibility in creating conditions that allow these individuals to be empowered, which usually leads to hurt and pain? And so for us, maybe something we can try this week is to examine what it means for us to pursue the downward path of humility. Right? How, how are we invited to resist the desire for power, to resist living 
out of our ego? What's our version of riding on a donkey in the spaces that we live and work? Because sometimes self-humiliation is good for our soul. And then what would collective resistance look like for us to protest against the corrupt influence of power in those who occupy spaces of leadership? So tell the daughter of Zion, look, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foil of a donkey. And then we continue in verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. And so as Jesus is making his way through the city on his donkey, a crowd gathers, even makes a path for him. And based on what we know about the people that Jesus spent most of his time with, this was most likely a very eclectic crowd, right? It was the marginalized, the societal outcasts, the poor, probably mixed in with tax collectors and, and Roman soldiers and religious leaders who were hanging in the back. And the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, which literally means save now or save us, we pray. It's both a cry of desperation and a cry of recognition that they needed rescue from Roman occupation. They needed rescue from the oppressive burden that was placed on them by religious leaders. And Jesus is choosing to move into shared space with the oppressed by walking the path with them on that day. And so for us, a downward path of solidarity leads us to advocate for those in need of rescue, including ourselves. Because there's freedom in acknowledging our needs, both individually and collectively. It's an invitation to come together for the sake of the marginalized and oppressed, even if that might put us at risk or come at a cost to us. And so for Jesus, his decision to ride on a donkey, it was a subversive act of protest. He was making a statement about oppression and, and choosing to confront it through nonviolent means. But he was doing this in the face of the Roman Empire, right? One that had power to subdue any political uprising through violence, typically in the form of execution. And so Jesus, knowing this would be the outcome, still chooses the path of solidarity to be present with those who are desperately crying out for help and rescue. You know, if you remember a few years ago, back uh, in 2018 in Thailand, uh, a boys' soccer team and their coach were trapped in a cave uh, for over 18 days. They were on a hike uh, when a monsoon hit so quickly that they couldn't get out in time, and they had to go deeper and deeper into the cave until there was no hope of them finding a way out or even anyone finding them where they were. But there was this collective global movement where people from all over the world got involved, they gathered in solidarity to help figure out how they could rescue these boys. Uh, here's one of the documentaries highlighting this effort. You can check out the clip. Breaking news right now.
now out of Thailand. Rescue teams are working through the night to save 12 boys and their coach trapped inside a cave. The monsoon had come early. The conditions in the cave were impossible. There was a very strong feeling that the children couldn't be still alive. We need expert cave divers out here. The Thai Navy SEALs put everything they had into it, but only this group of people who do it as a weekend hobby has those skills. I was thinking this, this has actually got our name all over it. You couldn't see your hand in front of your face trying to wriggle through holes that I couldn't wriggle through, finding a bigger space, sliding through, and then repeating again and again. How, how many of you? Thirteen. We look into each other's faces thinking we may be the only ones that ever see them. Finding the boys was the easy part. They didn't have a clue how to get those kids up. We didn't think it was possible to dive the children out. We came up with the actual logistical plan. I told him, that's a horrible idea. And then Rick said, what if it's the only idea? We were brutally honest. We promised multiple fatalities. It's about controlling your emotions and your fear. Panic is death in the cave. My mind was on overdrive. Oh my God, am I going to be good enough? If they die, it's going to tear me apart. If you don't die, everyone will die. I told the guys, this is a one-way trip. Once you start, you cannot stop. Believe. Believe. And if you've read the story uh, or watched the documentary, which is uh, really worth watching, the image of these amateur divers risking their own lives uh, to go all the way into the depths of these caves in order to find them and to be with them in their darkness really captures their solidarity with these boys. And they didn't stop there, but they continued to risk their lives to bring each one back with them to safety and to complete the rescue. And so for us, maybe something we can practice this week uh, is just to spend time reflecting on who we're invited to walk in solidarity with. Maybe imagine the crowd that Jesus was riding through. What would their cries be if they were here in our time and space? Right? Imagine their cries of Hosanna. Save us now. Rescue us. Save us from gun violence that's destroying our schools and public spaces. Save us from oppressive laws that don't protect the rights of our marginalized LGBTQ siblings. Save us from the systemic racism that still creates inequity in access and resources for people of color in our city. Who and where are the people we need to be in solidarity with to offer protection, advocacy, and healing, even if it may come at a risk or cost for us. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven.
And then we close in verse 10. When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And it's interesting to note here that when Jesus entered the city, the the reaction wasn't just this peaceful and joyful reception of people celebrating and waving palm trees, welcoming him. But here, Paul writes that the whole city was in turmoil, stirred up, restless, confused. Right? It's the same word that's used in describing Herod when he first heard the news about Jesus being born. Right? He was disturbed and anxious, wondering how to make sense of this. And so the people start asking who this man on a donkey or on two donkeys. And they identify him as the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And part of that label was meant to almost be condescending and insulting because Nazareth is this tiny, tiny town that no, no one thinks very highly of, right? In their context, no one important could ever come from that town. But again, this fits Jesus' MO of flipping the perception of greatness, where his identity is rooted in this small, humble hometown. And even in the midst of chaos and turmoil, Jesus' identity is being reflected back to him, and it authentically captures who he is and who he always has been. And so for us, the downward path back to our identity leads us to discover and live into our authentic calling. And there's freedom when we're able to live out of our authentic self instead of trying to live from our ego or from obligation. It's an invitation to explore the path inward and uncover the authentic parts of us that need to be revealed. You know, there's a chapter in Cole Arthur Riley's book, This Here Flesh, that focuses on our calling and what our, our authentic identity tells us if we're able to reveal it. She says this, she says, our questions of calling tend to be more aspirational than introspective. We spend a jarring amount of time asking young people what jobs they might have one day compared to how often we ask them what is true of them right now. The question of calling is not primarily a question of what we might become, but a question of what is already true, not least of which is what is true about the self. Ask me what I want to be, but not before you ask me who I want to be. Ask me who I want to be, but not before you ask me the more searing question, of who I am. Many of us will go to great lengths trying to answer this question without awareness of it. It's troubling that the answer would not be immediately clear to us, but there are parts of us we've managed to hide even from ourselves. Yeah, let that sit for a moment. Right, she's inviting us to consider who we already are and have always been. But unfortunately, we've been trained and wired to follow a path of development, right? To figure out what's the next step and and to achieve the goal of becoming something. Instead, perhaps we're invited to take the journey inward, 
and examine how our fear or obligations or hesitation or survival have all contributed to hiding the authentic parts of ourselves, even from ourselves. You know, I shared this with our leadership team recently, but I've had some interesting reflections just even on my own calling as a result of being more in touch with who I am and not what I do. You know, I was part of the team that first started Vox 17 years ago. And at the time, everyone, you know, just had to do what needed to get done, right? It's a typical startup. One person took care of the teaching, one person took care of music, one person took care of overseeing partnerships. Um, and then what was left was small groups and administration. Well, I guess that's mine. And, you know, I'm good at systems and organization and administration, and that's definitely in my wheelhouse. But that's also what I've been doing for 17 years. It's like I've been pigeonholed into these specific roles and responsibilities, more out of necessity and also because they felt comfortable for me. And then the last couple of years, we got thrown back into survival mode, right? As we navigated a pandemic, different staff transitions, and what I was doing became even more important just to keep things running. And it wasn't until we started to become a little more grounded with being back in person as a community, having some more stability with our staff, that I finally made some space to think and imagine beyond just survival. And as I've had opportunities to look inward at who I am, who I really am, what resonates for me, ideas and interests that have always been within me began to surface for how I might re-envision engaging and expressing my vocation as a pastor here at Vox. You know, things like interfaith dialogue or, or being present in spaces with people from vulnerable and overlooked communities. Like, those are all things that have always been a part of me and feel true to me. And they just haven't been fully explored in my context here as a pastor. And part of that is exciting, and part of that is scary, right? My spiritual director was reflecting back to me what I just shared, and he said, I have a choice between being comfortable doing what I need to do, or I can engage discomfort and uncertainty doing what I have an internal longing and desire to do. And that's what happens when what's authentic within me finally begins to emerge. And I know that many of us have had or are starting to have similar reflections as well. And what if the downward path back to our own identity can begin to heal us in a way where we can live more authentically to who God intended us to be? And so as we close, my hope, my hope for us, Fox, is that as we walk through the rest of this Holy Week, is that we would make space to reimagine how our path might align with the downward path of Christ. That we might need to reset our lens in how we view and measure greatness. Because Jesus was showing us another path, one that would lead to more freedom, more sustainability, and more authenticity to who God made us to be. And so let me close with this prayer. God, who is paradox and mystery, who flips the least for the greatest, 
May we walk the path of humility and guard against our ego and resist the urge to hoard power and influence. Jesus, who chose to become human in order to become one of us, may we walk the path that seeks the rescue of the hurting and practice solidarity with the most vulnerable. And Spirit, who reveals to us sometimes what we even hide from ourselves, may we walk a path that leads us back to our authentic identity and live out of a place of healing and joy. And so we ask all this in the humility of God, our Creator, the solidarity of Christ, and the calling of the Spirit. Amen.